I went out to my car, pulled the chainsaw out of the back, and started cutting up a corpse. And of course, wood chips, so to speak, were flying all over the. <laughs> Exploring Chiropractic, episode 29, After School with Gordy Ainsley. Welcome back to Exploring Chiropractic, the only student chiropractic podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Cashin, and thank you for joining me on this third part of my extended interview with the father of ultra trail running, Gordy Ainsley. We've heard some great stories in the past two episodes. This one gets pretty deep, but we really hear a lot of hilarious stories to start with of his experience in school, uh, some stories from professors who are still teaching 30 years later at Western States. Uh, we'll hear the legendary tale of the chainsaw, why he started a carnivore club, and a little bit about someone named the goat doctor. He also gives a few pieces of advice for current and future students, such as how to properly adjust a rib, and why you shouldn't start practicing right outside of school. Gordy certainly is a paradox of a man. In the last episode, you heard him share his opinion of philosophy. But in this part, he has a little bit of a different tune, sharing his belief that he gets help from the angels, and sharing his experiences at Parker Seminars and the Sage Experience. There's definitely more to this man than meets the eye, and... I continue to be impressed with him. Just this past weekend, 2016, Western States was run, and he towed the starting line again. He wasn't able to make it uh, through the race. Uh, He made it about six miles before the wilderness so that he could allow some other runner to take his place due to an injury. But he was there all night long. He was at the river crossing, volunteering. He was at the finish line, uh, helping other runners celebrate and taking selfies with all of them. So it's always impressive to me how uh, how much he gives back to the running community as well as to chiropractic. And I hope that you learn about him and, and take some things away from this interview. He, he shares so many pieces of wisdom uh, that, it, again, is why I couldn't just cut this down to one episode. Hope you enjoy this final part of my interview with Gordon Ainsley. I didn't know that you were at Western States until Biochem 2. <laughs> Do you remember who taught Biochem? Well, that that was Bobby Bull. Bob Bull, yeah. yeah. And so we were having a lesson on fat metabolism. And I went up to him afterwards because in, in running nowadays, becoming fat adapted is a big deal. And a lot of athletes are talking about it. So I asked him some questions and he was like, well, why do you want to know? I said, oh, because I'm, I'm planning on running a 50 miler. And he's like, oh, you're a runner. Do you know Gordy? And I, I had no clue that he would be talking of you. Of course, I had known your name. I knew who you were. But I was like, I, I don't know any Gordy. He's like, yeah, Gordy Ainsley. And I thought, oh, my gosh. How does Bobby Ball know Gordy Ainsley? I had no – I didn't know you had gone to that school. So he told me, and he had some fun stories to tell about you. What do you remember about Bob Bull? Well, I, well Bobby Bull is a he, – he's a, he's a humorous disguise as a college professor. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Bull is good. Uh, I was – I'll tell you, he probably um, – I imagine they still tell stories about the day that, you know, I, I made spending money going through chiropractic college. I, I, the VA paid for my education, but you know, never quite enough. And, uh, I made my spending money the way I made my money before I went to college, chiropractic college, which is 
from the time I was about 18 until I was, well, until I went to chiropractic college, uh, which was, I was 33. The, the thing I made most of my money on was chainsaws, mm. cutting up trees. I did logging. I did problem tree removal. I did a lot of wood cutting, firewood cutting. I finally got to the point where I said, you know, uh, Labor Day of 1978, I sat down for lunch and I just thought, you know, I could be the best woodcutter in Northern California. And, and I was damn good. Oh, my God, I was good at that. I mean, I could take a tree that was leaning down a hill and I could make it fall up a hill, you know, <laughs> with quite a lot of lean. I mean, more than you could do with a single cut, you know. And I I do what I would do is I do um, three watermelon cuts, you know, starting a, a foot a foot off the ground or six inches off the ground and put in a watermelon cut and jack the tree up a little from the other side, you know, putting in wedges. Then I do another watermelon cut, do the back cut, put in wedges, jack it up until finally I'd get it to fall uphill. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, I realized that, you know, I keep looking for more and more challenges and eventually it's going to kill me. You know, one time I, I misestimated a tree, had it tied to my, uh, my trailer. I had, a, I was, I was, yeah, you better, yeah, they're going to do it more. Anyway, I was, I was doing, uh, I was hauling, I was hauling my wood with, a, a an old Cadillac, 61 Cadillac with a, a trailer on the back. And I, I tied that to the, uh, to the tree with a long rope and, and cut it as much as I thought I had to. And then I took off and I was pulling the tree toward me. And then the car quit going my direction and the tree started falling back the other way. And, uh, and the only thing that kept me and the car and the trailer from going down, down over the hill was the back of the trailer hit a tree that was about eight inches in diameter and the rope broke. And at that point I realized, you know, I'm such a, you know, I always want to get better, you know, at whatever I do. And I thought, you know, this, this, this could kill me. I need to find something else to do. <laughs> and I realized that I could be the best woodcutter in Northern California. And I'd get to the end of my life and I'd say, so what? So I decided it was time to do something else. I went back to, I decided to go back to Sierra and pick up all my lower division requirements that I'd, I'd neglected because they were so boring. And, uh, and to do, to do the four-year college thing, finish off my four-year degree, I knew, you know, I knew I'd need a master's degree. And so I decided, well, I better get the VA to pay for it. So I, I went to a VA counselor and he, he asked me, he looked at my curriculum, what I'd studied at my grades, you know, which were good. And he said, why are you taking anatomy? Is that so that, is that to help you with figure drawing? Which I had taken a figure drawing class. I said, oh, I, I was so ashamed. I said, oh, no, you know, it's because in the back of my mind that I, I have thought for a long time that maybe someday I'd want to become a chiropractor. See, my mom, my mom was an RN. She worked with MDs all her life. And she never wanted me to be an MD, but from the time I was 12, she was working on me to be a chiropractor. And when I, when I was 32, I finally agreed that she was right. <laughs> so anyway, he just stopped me. He said, you know, I'm going to stop this interview right now. I want you to go home and think about this because the, the, the profession you're headed for, that whole field of, you know, the emotional, psychological helping professions, it's flooded with good people who are out of work. 
but there's always room for another good chiropractor. So you need to think about this. So I, you know, I realized, I went home and thought about it, and I, I just looked upon all the situations where I was happy working in my life and realized that it fit me like a glove. You know, there's no end to challenge, which I'm really into challenge. I, I want to find ways to do things better, always. And I, find, I looked upon my, my life, and I realized I'm, I'm kind of unhappy when I'm in an all-guy world. And I, I'm, I work best in a situation where there's men and women, and I would have that. And I just, you know, it, it just fit like a glove. So I came back a week later and said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I, I basically owe my future, you know, what's become of it to that guy. You know, I, I never took vocational counselors seriously, but, I mean, that guy made a total difference in my life. I mean, it totally redirected it totally right i mean at the time i was thinking i'd either become a cop or a or a chiropractor because those two professions are the ones that made the most difference in whether my life went well or not well you know the difference between a good cop and a bad cop is a huge difference makes a huge difference in people's lives and i knew i was going to be good at whatever i did and the difference between a good chiropractor and a bad chiropractor has made the most difference a huge difference in my life i mean i've known some bad ones the, we had a chiropractor next door in when I lived in Nevada City. And, you know, he just didn't know anything. And he made up for it in violence. Mm. I was terrified of the guy. You know, my brother, my chiropractic career started when I was about, oh, I don't know, six or seven, I guess. My brother and I were playing cowboy and I was the horse. He was older. <laughs> he, we were always, he grew up to be smaller than me, so we were always the same weight same size as we grew up and he jumped up and down on my back and kicked me in the ribs and yelled giddy up and he just really he really wrecked my back <laughs> but my mom took me to the chiropractor next door because she knew that's what chiropractors did and she said and i it may be true that he made me worse maybe mm. but he certainly didn't get me better and so then she took me to this guy named boma over in Grass Valley, and he got me better, but he couldn't get me well, and I was wearing my my shoes off on the inside of the heel, just to the nub. I mean, it was totally odd, odd wear pattern. And and I, you know, I'd been this hyperactive kid, always in frantic motion. Sometimes I actually had to like stop and wait for the world to quit spinning. I was just so frantic, you know, just so in motion all the time. And I became this kid that didn't want to do, you know, I, I wanted to walk. I mean, it was just because I didn't feel good. I felt kind of sick inside. Mm. So my mom did something that served her well her whole life. And that is she started talking about my problem to everybody. I mean, she'd taken me finally to the MD. He'd sent me to an orthopedic surgeon who said I was deformed. and I need special shoes and braces not to grow up crooked. Then she took me to the orthotist, and it was like a half of a month's wages for these special shoes and braces. And my mom said, well, I think we'll wait a little while. And then she started talking. Every, everybody, she'd, you know, if I was with her, she'd start talking about my problem. And eventually she was talking to this old guy, ben, uh, it wasn't Oscar Franklin, who ran a uh, used furniture store called the Bargain Barn halfway between Nevada City and Grass Valley. And he'd heard about this old guy they called the Goat Doctor who was out in the hills between 
Placerville and Georgetown, not even on the main road. He was on the on a on a back road called the Mosquito Road. And you know, he was a widow and my mom was a divorcee and she's quite pretty. And he he thought, you know, this will be this will be my in with her. I'm going to get her son healed. Well, what he didn't realize was he he was going to take <laughs> her and me and my grandmother, <laughs> the chaperone, <laughs> and and my little brother, who couldn't be left at home. I I don't know if we took him or not. But anyway, um, yeah. So it wasn't the dream romance date that he expected, but. You know, I, I remember they woke me up at three in the morning and I thought, why don't we just call for an appointment? And they said we were going to a goat doctor. I said, why aren't we going to a human doctor? But when we got there after a, a flat tire in cool, which just was an intersection with a street lamp at that time, we pulled in at about seven o'clock, seven thirty in the morning, probably seven thirty. He didn't open till nine. And they were already I think four cars full of people waiting for him. And the the story was, if you didn't get there before he opened at nine, you might not see him that day. And everybody just waited in their cars on the road. And then they'd go into his little waiting room, which had, it was just a shed off the shack. The guy was amazing. He was, uh, he was actually, uh, his mom, his adopted mother, he, he'd, He'd come here as a, as an orphan. Some relatives sent him over to, to San Francisco to, to find a new life in San, in San Francisco with relatives there. And he got here just after the 1906 earthquake. He went to the address and there was nothing but rubble there. He never did find his relatives. He started a, uh, a produce merchandising route with a wagon. And always had just the right amount of produce. He was one of those kind of people. He was a protected person, basically. He was, he was, um, yeah, he was intended to be there. But he came down with, came down with tuberculosis and he, he had to shorten his, shorten and shorten his route and finally couldn't do it anymore. And he'd made friends with this husband and wife and the wife was about halfway in age between the husband and him. Uh, about 15 years each way. And they actually went looking for him. They found him in Golden Gate Park, wrapped up in a blanket, waiting to die. Mm -hmm. And she took him, they had some money, and they took him to a specialist in L.A. who said, uh, he's going to die. And so she was a psychic. She was so good, she could... um, she could tell somebody was pregnant just looking at him. She did that once. She congratulated one of his patients later. But she had the ability to look at somebody and know what was wrong with them. And she sort of encouraged him and trained him, told him when he guessed right, told him when he guessed wrong, told him what he missed. And basically, she she encouraged him to be a chiropractor. But he was like self-taught, but but she was teaching him in the early days when he developed his diagnosis or, or his, you know, what would we say professional opinion or clinical impression. That's the word we like. He'd go into the next room and ask her and she would tell him what he'd missed. 
She did it from the next room. He never got that good. He had to touch people. But he, when I first saw him, he was so good that when he got done with me, and it didn't hurt. He did the same stuff we do, but none of it hurt. He knew exactly where to press, how much force, which direction, and he knew it as soon as he touched people. Anyway, when he got, when I got up off the table, my mom and grandma were picking up their stuff, you know, to leave. And he looked at my mom and he said, would you like a treatment? Now, my grandma had a congenitally dislocated hip. She looked a lot more crippled than my mom. Mm. But he said to my mom, would you like a treatment? And she said, oh, no, I just brought Gordy here for you to treat. And he looked at her sternly and he said, I think you should have a treatment. And, you know, being an RN, she said, well, all right. And so as he was laying her down on the table, he told her, you have an old injury you've probably forgotten about. It's been wrong so long, I can't make it right, but I can make it better. It happened about 11 years ago. <laughs> and she said, that's interesting. 11 years ago, I was in a Greyhound bus that was rear-ended by a diesel truck, and my neck hurt for three weeks. And he said, that's the time. Well, my grandmother was a Bible scholar and always looking for any sign of the devil anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I knew exactly where, where she was coming from when she said to him, how do you know that? But it was like, how do you know that? Well, he didn't pick it up and he just offhandedly said, well, when I touch people, I know what's wrong with them. And then with her voice just dripping with accusation, she said, how do you do that? <laughs> and he said, and he picked up where she was at. And he turned toward her, and his face got luminous. And he said, it's a gift from God. And she never said anything bad about him for the rest of her life. <laughs> the guy was amazing. He was absolutely amazing. Uh, his mother, adopted mother, told him his health was fragile. He had to be very careful about eating pure foods. You know, he, he had... He had this herd of goats. He drank their milk. He ate their meat. They were his friends to a degree until he ate them. <laughs> and, you know, the, the three of them just lived together for many years. And then she died. And this woman, who I would have to say was just evil, you know, she wanted him for a husband. And... She hung around. He sent her away once, took her to Placerville. She showed up again. And finally, he, he married her. And my grandmother always said that, you know, it killed him. He, he couldn't start, you know, he was about 60, 65, 60, I think, and started having sex again, you know. <laughs> and she was, she was sure that it killed him. But actually, what it appears is that she, she talked him into eating sausages and things like that, and he died of a heart attack, you know. And, and it was kind of like, this evil person just came in to take out this good man. It was amazing, you know, and, and I, I've seen that, you know, that, that happened with my friend Zane, you know, my, my rock climbing partner, I mean, incredible beneficial doctor. And, you know, we were at a rock climbing place and saw this, this young guy who was a, an expert on everything, you know, he's a very expert climber, uh, kind of a climbing bum, made friends with him. They decided to go rock climbing together, uh, high mountains which I didn't want to do. So Zane had done a couple of professional uh, climbs, and then this guy said, well, let's just go grab one of those high peaks in the southern Sierras 
and uh you know they they got the peak and they were walking down on the edge of a cliff you never walk down on the edge of a cliff i mean that's that's classic for stepping on a round rock and going over but that's you know zane was taking this young guy's word for it and you know bottom line is he didn't take good care of him you know and zane came he died he fell and died and the other the other side of that was zane had a price on his head he'd uh the, the California Medical Association, the board, and the attorney general's office were trying to take his license away because he was doing alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. And they were specifically going on the fact that he, he had used homeopathy to cure allergies. Well, homeopathy does cure allergies, but that's quackery to them. They, uh, they were having a hard time with him, and he, uh, he, he went... Uh, he fought them harder. He he said they didn't. They thought they were just picking on a country doctor, but he actually had made money in the commodities exchange, and and he was able to spend seven hundred thousand dollars on his defense without ever uh, selling anything off. Yeah, he, he was a fairly wealthy man, and uh, he dragged them into appellate court. He appealed their decision that he got. A, they got a conviction at a at a trial judge. And they dragged him into, he dragged him into court, and the appellate court said they'd hear the case, which meant they were going to lose, probably. And so they, they did what they'd always done, which is they started on one other patient. They always do just one patient at a time until they bankrupt the doctor, and he can't hire an attorney, and then they get a conviction. Well, Zane realized what no other doctor realized, that that is a violation of the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees you an effective defense. And you can't get it without money. They were deliberately depriving him of his Fifth Amendment rights. So he sued them for individually and as a group for hundreds of thousands of dollars individually. And there was a price on his head, you know, and we didn't realize that. We should have realized that. And so I don't know if that guy he went with was a higher killer or not, or if it was just an accident. I don't know. But, but that's the second person I know who was just a, a incredibly enlightened healer who was taken out by somebody who came into his life and just yeah. took him out. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm running low on time, yeah, but sure I got just a couple more questions sure. um, because we had a few faculty retire just less than a month ago. Oh, you know, I meant to tell you, you were asking me about the stories they told. I made my living with chainsaws, and so when Mike Carnes gave us his horribly dull saws to cut up the corpses and put them in the trash can i went out to my car pulled the chainsaw out of the back and started cutting up a corpse and of course wood chips so to speak were flying all over the carnes <laughs> carnes oh, was so in shock i i hit a hip prosthesis and so it just destroyed the blade i just said uh, you know i just packed up my saw he never even said anything he was so in shock he never he never scolded me he never even mentioned it he was just he was dazed <laughs> so i imagine that's probably one of the stories that's been told around the school ever since well i've heard him but i don't think any the students have heard it because we have a brand new anatomy lab yeah which is but when you were there it was probably the kind of more of a shed it was a shed it was yeah not very you know, appealing there was one other thing that was really interesting about anatomy lab i got a we got my 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 crew we got this guy and i think you know 
It must have been intended by a higher power. We got this guy who died with a faint smile on his face. And, and we used to joke about, he must have got some, some special care from his nurses. <laughs> but what I, what I, the prettiest woman there of the corpses died with this bitter, bitter expression. I mean, she died when she was like probably 45, 47. Yeah. Young. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful body, pretty face. I imagine she died of cancer. I'm guessing. I don't know that. Um, and, and I realized that we were the, there were, there were 10 corpses. Only one of them died with a smile on his face. And I set a goal. I'm going to try to be like that guy. I'm going to try to live a life and, and have a death that will make me able to, you know, if an anatomy student gets a hold of me, he'll say, hey, he died with a smile on his face, a faint smile. Anyway, go ahead. You had another question. Um, the other the other faculty that just retired is Mark Kaminsky. Oh, Mark. What did he teach when you were there? He was teaching microbiology. And Mark and I had a lot of fun. I, I you know, uh, um, one of the one of the most interesting things that ever happened to me was I was studying for his uh, um it was uh, neuro neuroanatomy I think or something like that out on Rooster Rock Beach and I at that point I'd been training in martial arts for 6 years a little more than 6 years I was only a brown belt but then I hadn't tested you know I was probably just about black belt level, and uh, there was there, Rooster Rock Beach was a need, nude beach. So I'm sitting there. Is I'm this trying, Rooster Rock on Silv- uh, Savi Island or Columbia Columbia Gorge? Yeah, Rooster Rock State Beach. Okay, right. So just just east of the school, yeah, Rooster Rocks. Okay, yeah. I remember that. So I, I'm sitting out there naked, you know, reading neuroanatomy, <laughs> and you can get you can get there by motoring up on the on the Columbia River if you have a boat you know it's only a quarter mile instead of a half mile walk and this couple was coming toward me and they were they were uh, arguing and and then the guy got about 30 feet away from me or so or maybe 15 yards and he grabbed the woman by the arm and started just whack whack and I said hey fella maybe you ought to think about what you're doing and he looked at me with his arm held up to hit her again he says you want some of this buddy and I looked at him and I thought you're in deep doo-doo, fellow. <laughs> and I just moved enough so I could get up before he could get to me. And I said, are you sure that's what you want? And he looked at me, and he figured out he was in deep doo-doo. And he just lowered his arm and walked away muttering to himself, oh, God, it was sweet. You know, I realized there was one of the lessons I had that bullies are always cowards. They're always cowards. If you, if you see somebody who's a bully, he's a coward. It, whenever he's faced with a chance of getting hurt, they turn tail. The other thing that was really neat was I, I was on my way out to Rooster Rock Beach as a freshman, obviously a freshman skinny dipper, and I was handing out business cards for my friend Ephraim Rodemacher, who lived in the same house with me, who was a senior, and he wasn't a real good publicist, but he was a good chiropractor, so I was handing out his cards to everybody on the way out. And I came to this one lady, and 
she had these two kids. And I said, uh, you know, I want to recommend this guy at the chiropractic college. He's a really good chiropractor. You should go see him. Oh, she says, oh, you don't have to persuade me. Chiropractic is wonderful. I wouldn't have these kids if it wasn't for chiropractic. And I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. I went to him for after an auto accident. He said, well, no wonder you can't have kids. You got this kink in your spine, you know. And I, he, she just hurt in her neck, obviously. So he straightened out her low back and uh, and you know she had these two kids so i that was on you know a weekend i come into homewood's class on monday and i said i told him about it and i said the whole class you know and i said is that is that real for real and he says oh yeah he says uh I've helped several of my female patients get pregnant. We all started going, <laughs> and he held up his hands. He says, honest folk, I only, I only use my hands. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Kaminsky and I had some good times. And that was, you know, I remember one time I was, uh, I, I was, I, I had figured out this problem and <laughs> I put, and the answer is voila. And I put down the answer. And his comment was, voila, yourself, you figured it out wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark was a lot of fun. And I, I'm sorry to hear any of those people retiring. And I, I totally give credit to Bobby Bowl. Obviously, he's retirement age. But he, he's like me. He's never going to fully retire. You know, I think real chiropractors and real, real, real teachers never do, you know. Well, and Mike Carnes is still coming around and still teaching um, bi- uh, biomechanics. Um, and they've, they mentioned, Mike Carnes said I had to ask him what your favorite running shoe, sorry, Mike Carnes said I have to ask you what your favorite running shoe is. That would be a Brooks Cascadia. Okay. And it's, uh, it's now not, uh, it's not advertised much, but you know, there, there is no one, in my opinion, who knows more about running than Scott Jurek. I mean, he's a physical therapist, and he he's a meditator. He's a vegan. Um, I don't think we'll ever see anyone ever win the Western States seven times consecutively ever again. The only person, uh, well, of course, Ann Trayson did it ten times consecutive, took a year off to see if she could get pregnant, failed, went back and won it four more times. <laughs> You know, but, uh, but she's not a physical therapist, you know, and, and I think, I think Scott Jurek knows more about what, how, how a runner's body works and pretty much uh, at least a trail ultra runner's body than, than just about anyone on, on the planet. Mm -hmm. And he got together with Brooks and designed that shoe. Oh. Yeah. See, and this is it. That's an older model, but I have I have two different years of Brooks Cascadian. Far away, the most satisfying shoe I've ever worn. I've heard it's the favorite of many. You you ran with Mike Carnes through the trails in Portland, isn't that right? When uh, he he said a few times. Uh, you know, I don't remember that because I was running longer distance than he did. <laughs> I don't I don't remember. I, I, I mean, I'm, I remember going out with him once or twice just for short, short stuff, but realize I didn't take that seriously. I, it's, it's, you, you tell, tell Mike, I'm sorry, but I barely remember it. <laughs> you know, I, you, you have to realize I was running from the freeway, uh, up the Eagle Creek's trail to Wadham Lake, 13 miles and back down. That was my, that was my fun day run. 
Now, if I was in training for Western States, I'd get up to Wadham Lake. I'd take the Pacific Crest Trail down to Cascade Locks, come up the Herman Creek to Wadham Lake again, come back down the Eagle Creek Trail, you know, for a total of 42 to 44 miles. And that was, that was good training for Western States. So, um, I, I will say to all, I'm sure there's a lot of runners at Western States. If you aren't running the Eagle Creek Trail, you're missing half your life. And if you really want to see what training for Western States is about, take a whole day on a fairly long day of the year. You know, May is good. June is good. July is good. And, and run from the Eagle Creek Trail trailhead up to Autumn Lake. Take the Pacific Crest Trail across Benson Plateau down to, you don't have to go all the way to Cascade Locks. You just get down near Cascade Locks, you'll hit the Herman Creek Trail. Turn right, go up the Herman Creek Trail. It'll take you right back to Wadham Lake again, and then you come back down. And that's a, that's a Western States training run. That's, that's what you do. Eagle Creek, the t- it's so technical because the, the rocks are just sharp and all over the place. I haven't made it up that far. My favorite is Angel's Rest and then Larch Mountain and coming back down. I, I've never run that one. I've run Moldova Creek to Larch Mountain, 14-mile round trip. You know, I didn't have lights in those days, and I always wanted to watch the sunset, and I'd, I'd hang out there and then come back in the gloom and have sprained ankles. And Oh, by the way, one of the things is I've got a protocol for curing sprained ankles. Uh, but I, I, I probably shouldn't take the time to go over it today. Okay. Uh, but hopefully I'll be publishing it in Dynamic Chiropractic in the near future. Good. Mark Kaminsky mentioned that when you were at school, you started a club? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> the carnivore club. <laughs> when, when, I was, when, when I was new in school, I was looking for somebody to, have a, to move in with you know, and share, share a house with. And I was recommended to Alan Goldhammer, who is still my friend. Uh, we spent the first six months together. Alan was the head of the Natural Hygiene Vegetarian Club. He now has an in-house treatment facility where he hires MDs for medically, MDs, chiropractors, naturopaths for, for supervised fasting. And it's, it's where is this? In, I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. True North. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, Alan's brilliant. Alan, Alan knew everything about diet and pretty soon he knew everything about chiropractic. And I, I got annoyed at him. And so I, I, I started the carnivore club. I, I, I actually, I, I wrote up on the board that the kind of carnivore club meets M-E-A-T-S Friday from four to six at the candy store, which was this pub where they had, you know, exotic dancers. <laughs> and, and so after a while, uh, you know, I, I, I slated it as a necessary first line of defense against the forces of militant vegetarianism. And after a while, after about a, a couple of weeks, my classmates said, Gordy, why aren't you attending your club, your club meetings? I said, what are you talking about? Well, we're meeting at the candy store. Actually, we changed it down to the Wooden Chicken Pub. Can you imagine that name, Wooden Chicken Pub? It's still there. Yeah, yeah. On the corner of Sandy and 122nd. Exactly. So that's where we had our meetings. And then I started writing up programs. And, you know, I, I remember one time I, I wrote up, uh, oh, I, we had we had a, oh God, what was it? 
we had this guy with a big temper. He was the academic dean. His name was Robert Toller. I mean, he would turn purple when he, whenever he'd get angry. And uh, I wrote a, a a skit for the for the the uh, Halloween program. It was a Halloween uh, spoof entertainment program, and and I I said that uh, that he'd said that that somebody had somebody had knocked down the 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 wall on the gate going in to the college i imagine there's still a wall that comes out part way and they close it during the night or something not right at the entrance um way back from the entrance yes yeah, yeah. and somebody knocked it down they'd run into it and 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 i said that i called him dr toleremia and i said that he's probably dead now so i i don't think he'll be offended but i said <laughs> And and he threatened to knock down the wall again if he didn't get his way. <laughs> and let's see, I, I had I had Herbert Veer, who was the the president of the college at the time, um, saying that uh, he he was a a rotund fellow, and I I I said he was he was going to talk to us on how he'd how he'd how he'd lost how he was losing. A half a, I think it was a pound, a half a pound a week, on the ovo lacto carno vegetarian diet. I was making fun of people who call themselves vegetarian and they they eat chicken and fish, yeah. you know, and eggs and milk, you know, and <laughs> so I came up with the ovo lacto carno vegetarian diet, which I said that you know the the person the person who was the major champion of this was of course Michael Carnes. So he got mentioned in the carnivore club a lot, uh, and and then uh, then I, I followed that up with I think the first first announcement was that that he was going to be lo- using losing one half uh, half a pound a week, and then uh, another month I had him talking, and he, he was bragging about how he's losing a quarter pound, and I was working my way toward one eighth pound. <laughs> <laughs> And what finally stopped the carnivore club was one was really, really uh, I, I was surprised, uh, but I was threatened with expulsion from from school if I didn't stop putting the carnivore club stuff. I mean, we kept meeting, but I couldn't couldn't put the programs, these bogus programs, <laughs> up on the wall. And that was I. We had a we had a bunch of militant feminists in my class, and I I said that uh, I, I wrote up that. The, the carnivore club oh uh wsccccccc that was western states chiropractic college carnivore club central committee chairman <laughs> that was me <laughs> was recommending the movie nine to five for all viewing by male chauvinist sexist pigs so that they could know what the male chauvinist pigettes were up to and there was a, a a militant feminist who was personal friends with Dr. Veer, and she complained, and he threatened me with expulsion if I didn't stop. <laughs> stop the car. He also threatened I, w- I would go barefoot to class, and he also threatened me with uh, expulsion if I didn't wear shoes. And so I, I would walk around with my shoes in my hand and put them on whenever I saw him. <laughs> and then, and then just to lampoon the guy, I got a, that, that barefoot doctor's manual from communist China. 
And I, I got, oh yeah, Communist China put out a barefoot doctor's manual for, for the country doctor who doesn't have any facilities. Wow. And so I bought a copy and I got everybody to sign it for a 25 cent donation. And I got all these people to sign it that I gave it to him. <laughs> oh yeah. Did you try to go barefoot into the anatomy lab? No. Okay. Oh no. Carnes has a different uh, memory of that. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe I, maybe I did. Cause I went barefoot everywhere, but yeah. I wouldn't, I would think I wouldn't want that, those toxins on my feet. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Maybe I wasn't as sensitive. Maybe I, maybe I wasn't as aware of the damage of toxins as I am now. But you know, you're breathing that stuff. You know, um, I, I finally put on a gas mask, you know, one of those filter things that painters wear. Yeah, that was that was really toxic. I hope they have better ventilation now than they did then. It's amazing now. Well, let's wrap it up. This is uh, this podcast is for students. So, do you have advice for a student thinking of going into chiropractic? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd say you, you absolutely can't go better than go to Western States. You know, I, I just think it, I'm so happy I went to that school. I just you know. Um, I just got a really good education. A piece of advice I got from all my teachers that I took was really good. Um, they said, okay, when you get your degree and you get your license, you can start your own practice, but don't do it. Find the smartest doctor in your area or the smartest doctor you know and associate with him for at least a year. So when I got back here into Auburn, I looked around and I, what I did was I was waiting, you know, I, I took my test and I, I had to wait, you know, two months or two and a half months for my word on whether I passed, which I did. And I spent a day with each of these chiropractors and I saw how they adjusted and I decided that Jim Greenlee was the smartest doctor in town. So I asked him if I could associate with him and he said, yeah, he said, I was actually going to invite you. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, my criteria, he said, you've already passed my criteria. He said, I've got a rib that's very difficult to adjust, and you were able to adjust it. That's my test for whether I'll accept an associate. And when he asked me during that day when I was, that I spent with him, I said, do you care how I adjust it? And he said, no. And I said, well, just stand there. And I wrapped his arms around his chest, you know, grabbed his elbows, and then I put pressure on that rib at that location, and then I did this lift and compression, and the rib popped. And it was, you know, it's just one way of adjusting a rib. I mean, I don't, I don't do that real commonly in practice because, you know, people are usually lying down on the table, and I usually do uh, the move that uh, Dr. Stephen Oliver taught us. He was the master of rib adjusting. He had a, a method of adjusting. I, I did get one one other improvement from a, a doctor, from a patient of mine, from a doctor who retired. And I went to visit him, and one of my patients says, "You gotta you gotta see Doctor Cole." I went to see Doctor Cole, and I, I never did get what the difference was between my adjusting and Doctor Cole's adjusting. And then Ian, my patient, after Doctor Cole died, he said, "You know, it seemed like Doctor Cole was coming. He was doing his adjustment." kind of from the side toward the middle. And so I started putting a medial vector into my rib adjusting, which I was doing anteriorly or prone. I did both ways. 
And immediately I started getting better results on the rib just by putting a, a medial vector in there. So my advice to all the students is remember to put the medial vector into those rib adjustments. And, 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 and please do, do associate with the smartest doctor you know. And, and they, the, my teachers said, even if he takes financial advantage of you, do it. Hmm. At least a year. And I associated with Jim Greenlee for a year and a half. And the only financial advantage he took was when we had an office party for the staff. There were always a whole lot of extra steaks. And he took them home with him. <laughs> <laughs> this meat is mine. We never, we never split them. <laughs> this meat is mine. <laughs> but that's that's... That's possibly the best advice I ever got as far as, and, and Jim Greenlee was, uh, you know, one of the things that was good about it was he graduated from Los Angeles College of Chiropractic. He was one of these brainy guys. He uh, wasn't magna cum laude. Yeah, it was magna cum laude. Um, you know, I almost made cum laude. I never paid attention to my grades. I just paid attention to learning the, ma the material uh, after the first year when I, when I knew I was going to... Um, going to um, survive. You know, I knew I wasn't going to flunk out. So after that, I just paid attention to learning the material instead of worrying about a grade. There's one other thing, and that is um, during, the, during the course of uh, my, was it my junior year? No, sophomore? Yeah, sophomore year. I developed a relationship with a lady in, who was a freshman. And in my junior year, she got involved in an organization called the Sage Experience, which basically teaches all of this other stuff out there. And they teach you to put out for what you want. Don't make it a, an absolute necessity. Uh, it's, it's, it was a takeoff on, on Est, but he decided that instead of getting your personal power together and everything else would fall in line, you get your love life together and everything else will fall in line. Your love energy, I should say. And... I remember that when, when I, f I, I went through it because I didn't want to lose her. You know, I figured, you know, she's got this new group of friends. I better make them my friends too. And, and it did work, you know, uh, it worked that time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I finished this marathon, you know, from Friday evening to Sunday, mon actually Monday morning at two in the morning. I didn't really have much time to sleep. And Maggie Craw, who was, um, well, she, she didn't like men. And, you know, if you were a, a gay guy or a, a woman who was a feminist, you'd do okay in her class. She was brutal in her tests. And I came out of that experience, and the first thing at 10 o'clock Monday morning was a final exam with Maggie Craw. What was she teaching? X-ray. Tenth quarter, you had to pass it to get into senior clinic. And um, you couldn't go on if you didn't pass that course. They'd, they'd, they'd stop you. So I took that test. I just, I said, I put out to the universe that I just want Maggie Craw to give me a test I can pass. And I came out of that, and I'm out in the hall, and I said, you know, and then we're kind of hanging around. And I said, I can't believe it. Maggie Craw actually gave an easy test. And everybody else said, what? That was the hardest test she's ever given, or one of the hardest. And I realized, 
you know, there's something to all of this, you know, and it's not just chiropractic philosophy. It's like there's all this stuff out there, like what Dr. Holmwood was talking about, the Church of the Blue Light, and, you know, this was a sage experience. Um, but there's a lot of stuff out there that'll help you along your way. And I, I, I kind of generically refer to it as getting help from the angels. So uh, a person shouldn't ignore that. Well, on that note, I have a gift for you because last time we talked, you mentioned um, the Sage Experience and then some audio tapes that you liked to listen to. And I found them, the Foster Hibbern. No kidding. Yeah. And so oh I God. put them on CDs. That's why I asked you how you listen to music on oh, Facebook. Yeah. Um, so I'm. You've got his whole collection there? I've got three audiobooks three sessions the one of them is called the millionaire well let's see open that up i don't i i searched for that and i couldn't find it of course i didn't i searched years ago wow that's one oh you know that that is what i would also say foster hibbard is the one practice management person practice development person that you should seriously get involved in he's dead so wow. you've got The Art of Total Living, The Millionaire Secret, I think, The Millionaire Success. Oh, Success Seeds. Success Seeds. And, and then The Millionaire Seminar. Millionaire Seminar. Yeah. The last time I went to a um, Parker Seminar, which I felt I should go to, um, he was talking and he was selling his complete collection on tape. And I, I bought uh, two copies, which I gave one of them away, and I lost the other one. I don't know where it is. So all I can say is this is extremely appreciated, and that is the one other piece of advice I would give to anybody. See, Foster said, I want you to be successful to the degree that you define success. And he said he was partially crippled for 17 years until one of you let loose the secret that you could help me. And so, mm. because he, he, he was the one of three people who had personally trained and lectured with Napoleon Hill, who was the guy who wrote Think and Grow Rich. He was the father of motivation in America, and, or prosperity motivation in America. The other two are Earl Nightingale, W. Clement Stone, and Foster Hibbert. That's it. Those are the three. And, you know, what was great about Foster is, you know, I didn't want to be a big practice doctor. I didn't have to be. You know, the VA, I didn't have a kid to raise. I, I only hung around with women who worked. Um, I didn't have particular financial, you know, aspirations of being wealthy. And the VA had paid for my education. You know, now that's not that's not a situation that many people get into, but uh, but it was the situation I got into, and so I didn't want to be a big practice doctor, and I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that people follow my lead, but what's uh, because most people need to make more money. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time on on uh, you know putting together scientific stuff, like I I published the first or I, I authored the first published medical journal article on the cancer-preventing effects of sun exposure. Um, you know, it was a landmark article at the time, you know, and it's being proven truer and truer every day, much to the dismay of the medical establishment. But 
Foster Hibbard said, I want you to be successful to the degree and as you define success. And his, you know, his stuff is so, is, is so accurate. Like, one of the things he said is, the best way of getting your practice built is to write a newsletter yourself. Write it yourself and send it out. Of course, we didn't have email. Now you have email. But he was right. You know, as long as I turned out a newsletter, you know, every other month or so, I, you know, I'd, I'd have as many people as I could, uh, could handle. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing he said was, when you, when you need, when you need, um, when you, when you're in need, take the attitude of gratitude. He said, and he recommended a, a saying that was given to John Kelly, who was at, you know, about to kill himself. Uh, he became the a poet and artist of the Hawaiian Islands. And he was about to go out and take the long swim, and this old kahuna came out and told him to repeat over and over to himself, Lord, I do give you thanks for the abundance that is mine. And the guy was, you know, just fighting with Akuna, Lord, Lord, if there was a Lord, you know, and, and, and Foster said, you have to realize Lord means law. This is just, we're talking the law of cause and effect in our universe. Lord, I do give you thanks for the abundance that is mine. And what he said is, Foster said, say it over and over to yourself until you feel something change and realize that you're not only, you're not only thanking for what you have now, but you're thanking for what is even now coming toward you that you don't know about. And that's been really, really powerful for me. You know, when, when I get to the point where I don't know where the money's coming from, you know, like we had a situation where my wife lost her job in 2010. Her daughter was dying of brain cancer. She couldn't pay attention to her work. And I kept saying that and money would just appear, you know, like, one, I remember in January or, or February, I didn't know how we were going to pay the mortgage. And an insurance company that I wasn't expecting to hear from for um, three more months sent me a check for, I don't know, something like $800 or $1,000. You know, I, totally unexpected. And um, then later, we didn't know we had to pay the property taxes and the income tax and you know everything all at the same time and i didn't know how we were going to do that and we were desperate and so she took the wedding ring from her first marriage which had a really big rock in it took it to a sacramento jeweler they offered her 600 took her to an auburn jeweler they offered her a thousand and i said let's go talk to harvey who's a f friend because i'm i'm a pretty political guy you know i've i've uh, been involved in supervisor elections. I'm, I'm uh, on the board of directors of this park district that we're sitting in right now. And I was involved in the Endurance Capital Committee of the World to, because Auburn declared itself the Endurance Capital of the World. Mm -hmm. So I was helping with that. And I, and I, I knew this jeweler named Harvey. And so I took it into Harvey. And Harvey is just one of the, I mean, he died recently. He, he went on a hunting trip riding a motorcycle, he's riding ahead, a dirt bike, you know, he's an archer. And his friends caught up with him, they found him, he just died of heart failure, apparently. Mm. Maybe uh, maybe uh, an arrhythmia, but he was dead. 
I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, uh, you know, and it, there was no time involved and probably died of fatal arrhythmia. But, you know, hearing other people tell stories just like this about Harvey, Harvey was just, he was not an angel on this earth. And anyway, I took it to Harvey and he steam cleaned it. He looked at it under a microscope and came out and he says, well, he said, you know, you should have sold this a year ago before everybody, you know, the, because the economy was so bad, everybody's digging their heirlooms out. And he says, I could have given you probably $3,800 for this last year, but all I can do now is 26 And realize that the highest she'd gotten was 1000 Yeah. And 26 got us through two months, and then uh, she got another job in June. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she's a fitness person. Mm-hmm. But she quit because she quit the, the old job. Well, she had to quit because her club was bought the summer of 2010. Her club was bought by a, a couple young guys who wanted to be the, have all these gorgeous women around. And, you know, she's 60 years old. I mean, she's gorgeous for a 60-year-old woman. But, you know, she's 60 years old. Years old. And so, they, you know, they offered her a job back with a 57% wage cut. And, you know, she couldn't live with that. So she just became a... a a um, independent operator, you know, just yeah. doing doing that. She she got a, a little studio for herself and did the Pilates and yoga there. Pretty amazing. Anyway, there's there's a my point being that you know instead of, instead of listening to people talk about chiropractic philosophy, which is all good, but you need to realize that B.J. Palmer was kind of full of it. <laughs> I mean that idea that that you know C one and C two are the the end all be all and and those people do get people well there's no question about it and they do it they do it pretty good but try to justify that to an MD mm-hmm. you know you just yeah. can't do it yeah. and uh, you know and and just remember that there's a lot of philosophy out there besides chiropractic philosophy there's a lot going on out there in the universe like what dr homa talked about about the church of the blue light and if you're going to be a full healer you need to learn that stuff too but that can wait until you know you can do that along with chiropractic or you can do it afterwards i i continued it afterwards you know i got involved in a meditation church and all kinds of stuff like that and and it's all useful you know one of the things that i regret i mean i've invented adjustments that work wonderfully for I, I've never had a cervical disc failure ever since I fell off a rock and broke my hands and I had to develop a whole different way of adjusting the neck and oh. it cures cervical discs in less than 10 visits what do you use your elbow no fist okay yeah I had to I had to do everything a straight line through my through my uh, metatarsals from my radius into the metatarsals and it uses the chin pull I should probably demonstrate it sometime but I don't know how to you know I wish somebody would have a chiropractic college near here so I could yeah so I could yeah. teach because I anyway I, I appreciate you giving me a chance to pass on because you know I'm, I'm getting old and I, I don't want I don't want the knowledge I have to be lost yeah yeah well, that's I, I'm glad that you appreciate it. That's was my whole hope, you know, when I found out 
that you were a chiropractor, that you started the 100-mile race, that you... And, you know, Carnes tells me that you're also a well-respected and well-decorated rock climber, and you're on the cover of Rock Climbing Magazine. No, no, no. I'm, yes, you were. I've seen the magazine. Seriously? You have a photo on the cover of a rock climber. I don't know what which magazine it is. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to look it up and send it to you. Oh, okay. Because I've seen it online. But, yeah, interesting. So, how do you identify yourself chiropractor rock climber runner you know the the greeks of athens had a concept that was called arete it's spelled just like an arete which is a a rock formation a-r-e-t-e um they believed that to be complete of course men were the only people who counted you know but so now we'd say a complete person. But they, they believed that to be a complete man, uh, you had to be a philosopher, a warrior, and a statesman. Okay? So I've got a second-degree black belt in karate. I'm uh, fairly talented with guns. I was the outstanding rifleman in my basic training unit. Um, and I'm a politician. And a healer. <laughs> so I'm all of those things. I, I took it one I took it one step past the Greek concept. And and I you know, I added the healer in there in there. But uh, yeah, I'm all of those things. I'm 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 probably the classic example of what the Greeks had in mind. Yeah. You know, I, I do it all. Well thank you. You have a lot of wisdom to share and a lot yeah, of great I, I just I just wanna suggest, you know, one of the things I see wrong in chiropractic is people don't take care of their bodies. And they're, they're, there's some doctors out there who are really bad examples of, um, you know, physical health. And we need to realize that it takes more than adjusting to be healthy. You have to exercise. You have to eat whole foods. Um, there's a question about what, the balance of foods. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're in deep doo-doo with uh, serious health problems, you're probably better, best off being a low-fat vegan. Uh, but if you've got, if you've got uh, Parkinson's, for instance, you need to be a high-fat vegan, huh. you know. But you know the various whole foods is the is the bottom line, yeah. and, and exercise. You know, you, you need to exercise at least twice a week for an hour to be healthy, yeah. and it has to be continuous. It's something that keeps you huffing and puffing. Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, so that's how I think of myself. Thank you again for tuning in to exploring chiropractic and this series of interviews with Gordy Ainsley. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we get back to exploring the chiropractic schools around the world. We'll talk to students at Cleveland University in Kansas, as well as a student at the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic. Really looking forward to learning more about those schools. If you haven't yet, follow us on Facebook at Exploring Chiropractic, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Exploring Cairo. And if you would please support this podcast by leaving reviews, whether it's on iTunes, just go to iTunes, search for Exploring Chiropractic, leave a three or four or five star review, whatever you think I deserve. Or if you listen on Stitcher, leave some feedback on there as well. We're available anywhere podcasts can be found, as well as on YouTube. If you, ex- if you search for Exploring Chiropractic, you can see some of the interviews that we do via Skype or Google Hangouts. Once again, thanks so much for your support, and continue enjoying the journey. <laughs>